Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. Thank you for tuning in to Only You Podcast. This is your boy Lo Jackson. This is a podcast where we like to talk about everyday situations, depression, anxieties. We like to talk about neuroplasticity. We like to talk about psychology. We like to talk about different types of books that may help and encourage someone to become somebody who they weren't yesterday. And maybe we will find somebody out there who enjoys these books and this podcast. And I have actually found about 5,000 people that seem to be liking uh, everything they're hearing. So I appreciate your comments. I appreciate all the emails I'm getting. Thank you guys for listening. And thank you for always following me and sharing me and being a part of my life as much as I want to be a part of yours. And today I want to be doing The Mind and the Brain by Alfred Bennett. And uh, I am I am excited. This is my second season of the Only You podcast. Um, remember I had told you that I want to try to do things that are going to help you, um, you know, with coping skills, you know, because a lot of people in the world um, um, lack uh, coping skills for um, everyday situations, whether it be mental health, whether it be coping skills for anger, um, whether it be uh, coping skills to try and get over a death in your family. Um, there's a lot of different things out there that people need coping skills for. And I, I, I find this to be important, um, because nobody's teaching kids or anybody else, uh, coping skills these days. And I mean, I shouldn't say nobody is, I mean, there are a handful, there are a handful of people out there, doctors, uh, motivational speakers. You got Les Brown, uh, Eric Thomas, you know, you got Tony Robbins, uh, look at Tony Robbins. I mean, it's $5,000 a ticket to go see one of his shows. That dude's been around forever. I mean, Chris Farley wasn't joking around back in the nineties about, uh, Tony Robbins, you know, being soft and calm and all this stuff, you know, because, you know, Tony Robbins is a hit because Tony Robbins knows what he's talking about because he is a life coach. He is somebody you can look up to, but he's not just talking about it. He's really actually putting it to work and being about it. And his actions speak way louder than his words. But, you know, one thing that Tony Robbins taught me throughout this time was, you know, you, you gotta up your standards. You know, I came from a really poor family, but then again, I had a rich family too. So I got the best of both worlds and that's why I am the way I am. People never really understand me and they think I'm odd, but I had to learn to be transparent in my relationships because at one time when I was a kid, I'd be at the trailer park and then two minutes later, I'd be across town in a mansion, you know, sitting at a table with eight people that were, that was a very strict home um, they weren't all about God. Um, they actually suffered. Most of them suffered from a, of a lot of addictions and, um, a lot of them were military people in that family. And, um, the other side of my family, you know, they were all farmers and, um, carpenters and electricians and stuff like that. So, you know, I've had to learn to be the way I am and find coping skills to deal with certain people because I had to learn how to impress not only my wealthier family, but also impress and be there for my poorer family. And at times it has caused me to have, um, some serious strain in relationships. You know, I have nine sisters and three brothers, everybody. 
And if you don't think that that's a household full of personality ideas, mouths, and crazy, crazy personalities, oh, you have no idea. You get 11 kids together on a weekend, and they and all the girls want to be Hulk Hogan, and you're the youngest, you know, hell, my dad couldn't keep a coffee table back then. <laughs> and I ain't lying. That's the truth. And uh, you guys, this is the Only You podcast, and today we're going to be doing The Mind and the Brain by Alfred Bennett. And I find this book to be a five-star review. Uh, You guys can go out and get this book on any of the platforms um, that I always tell you about. I I try to stimulate your guys' minds. Um, In this podcast today, I'm reading this book because I want to talk to you guys about the vagus nerve. And there's a lot to... The vagus nerve... um, Vagus in Latin actually means wander or wandering... And it's the longest running nerve in your body. It's connected to every single major um, organ that you have, your lungs, your heart, your stomach. But a lot of times if you hear about the vagus nerve or its counterparts, because there's other vagus nerves, there's other parts of the vagus nerve system too, you know. Um, But you hear a lot about how the things you put in your mouth are medicine and I only say that that is true just for the fact that, you know, I've done a podcast on Bernard Jensen's Foods That Heal, you know, in the past. And if you ever get a chance to read that book, Bernard Jensen was a stand-up guy. He's from, you know, he was from uh, California, but he did all the schooling here in Chicago. Um, But uh, I find that to be true because the vagus nerve attaches the stomach to the brain and weighs... The way you can stay vibrant all your life, and this is things that I've done. I've always exercised my vagus nerve all my life. So people are like, how can you have all these traumas, all these tragedies, all these sorrows, all this pain and all this sadness and still have that smile? How can you still wake up every day and get out of bed after, you know, you did all that time in prison? How how can you look forward to a new day you know, and stand up, take a step and repeat until you get to your goal. Because in reality, I'm able to do that because I've always, always, and other people are too, you know, inmates, inmates do this stuff all the time just for the fact that they're interesting to study because they're locked away in a six by nine. They have no voice, no opinions, no nothing, you know, and these people, not everybody, not all inmates, but some inmates learn to exercise their vagus nerve, you know, throughout their sentence And I've read about this, you know, and the food you put in your mouth go into your stomach. And so if you're putting fatty O3 mega acids into your diet, you are definitely exercising your vagus nerve because um, the essential fats that your body can cannot produce itself. They are found primarily in fish and are necessary for normal electrical functioning of your brain and nervous system. So I've always told my kids growing up, like, you know, eat all the fish you can. And I've always fed tuna to my all my dogs too. And all my dogs have always been intelligent. So I do know that um, fish oil is one of the best things for your uh, vagus nerve. Um, also, uh, kombucha or probiotics. And if nobody knew this, if you don't like pumpkin seeds, you should actually incorporate them or a few of them into your diet each week because pumpkin seeds actually have a probiotic that is only in pumpkin seeds and no other source 
in the world can you get that probiotic but from pumpkin seeds? And I don't know the exact name of it, but check it out. Google it. You can find it. Um, it's becoming increasingly clear to researchers that uh, gut bacteria improves brain function by affecting the vagus nerve. And uh, in one study, animals were given the probiotic lac- lactobolus uh, raminosus, and researchers found that positive changes to the GABA receptors in the brain, in which um, I don't know if any of you guys have studied, GABA is one of the chemical receptors in your brain that um, makes you feel good, you know, makes you happy, and makes you, uh, yeah, it cuts down on stress. It's a reduction in stress hormones and less depression and anxiety, like, you know, behavior issues. The researchers also concluded that these beneficial changes between the gut and the brain were facilitated by the vagus nerve. When the vagus nerve was removed in other mice, the uh, addition to lactobolus uh, raminosus to their digestive system failed to reduce anxiety, stress, and improve mood. Because, I mean, if you take away the vagus nerve, you're not going to be able to regulate a lot of things. Another study found that, excuse me, the probiotic um, Bifidobacterium longium normalized anxiety-like behavior in mice. So that's pretty wild, right? Um, Other things that can exercise your vagal nerve that I've used all my life is um, the exposure to cold temperatures. If you ever watch any motivational speakers and they talk about Mark Zuckerberg, um, Joe Rogan, um, you know, huge gurus in the world that are doing big things and they're not just talking, you know. You know, you can't just talk about being different and changing and then going around acting a certain way that portrays a whole different story than what you're saying because um, cold exposure actually, um, it's a, well, I shouldn't say cold exposure, acute cold exposure. It's it's been shown to activate the vagus nerve um, and... um, Color, I can't spell the, oh, hold on a second, cholingeric neurons through vagus nerve pathways, and that's a hard one, it's C-H-O-L-I-N-E-R-G-I-C, neurons, whatever that means, so I haven't looked that up, but researchers have also found that exposing yourself to cold on a regular basis can lower systematic fight or flight response and increase uh See, that's the other one, parasympathetic activity through the vagus nerve. And other, you know, this is an older um, book that I'm going to be reading to you. But, you know, there's a parasympathetic vagus nerve. And that's a part of the vagus nerve is the parasympathetic part. Um, Taking cold showers can go, you know, you can go outside and take a cold shower with minimal clothes on, you could do, and that's why some people do the ice bath or the polar plunge, stuff like that. Um, another way you could uh, exercise your vagal, or excuse me, your vagus nerve is to deep and slow breathing. So whenever you're in a stressful situation, if you focus on your breathing and you do 
and then breathe out and you hold so so you breathe in halfway then you breathe in all the way you hold it for a second or two and then you let it out that's actually an isometric breath and so your mind is forced to think that you're getting ready to go to sleep so even in the middle of a fight or an argument if you breathe in halfway then breathe in fully hold it for one to three seconds and then let out and continue to do that your whole entire mind just focuses on the breath and your subconscious like it'll it'll change any direction of any kind of negativity around you it'll even change positive you know stuff going on around you and make you think less about the positivity of it um so deep and slow breathing is another way to stimulate your vagus nerve. It's been shown to reduce anxiety and increase the uh, parasympathetic system by <clears throat> activating the vagus nerve. Um, most people take about 10 to 14 breaths each minute. Taking about six breaths over the course of a minute is a great way to relieve stress. You should breathe in deeply from your diaphragm. Like when you sing, they say you should sing from your diaphragm. And that's another one that actually... Um, um, activates your uh, vagus nervous singing as well. Um, when you do this, oh, oh, I'm I'm still back on. I'm still on deep and slow breathing, y'all. So when you do this, your stomach should expand outward. Your exhale should be long and slow. This is key to stimulating the vagus nerve and reaching a state of relaxation. And like I told you before, you know, singing, humming, chanting. Um, and gargling even is a way that you can stimulate the vagus nerve. Um, it, it's connected to your vocal cords and the muscles at the back of your throat. Singing, humming, chanting, and gargling can activate these muscles and stimulate your vagus nerve and has shown uh, to increase heart rate, uh, variability, and vagal tone. So, I mean, that's some pretty important stuff, you guys. So, and, and you should gargle. I mean, if you can't do singing or humming or chanting... You know, when you're brushing your teeth in the morning or at night, gargle, gargle water, gargle, you know, um, I often, yeah, because I often gargle water before, you know, swallowing it. This is discussed more um, in, in the book, oh yeah, in the book, uh, Why Isn't My Brain Working? So if you guys want to check that book out too, that's by uh, Dr. Dantis Karazanians, and I, I would... Uh, recommend you check that book out too um and like i said probiotics is a it, it helps you know your vagus nerve to be activated to make you more less stressed and obviously meditation is a huge one um meditation is my favorite relaxation technique and it can be it can be used to stimulate the vagus nerve and increase vagal tone research shows that meditation increases vagal tone and positive emotions and promotes feelings of uh, goodwill towards yourself and towards others. Another study found that meditation reduces symp uh, sympathetic fight or flight activity, which I always say this in all my other podcasts, you know, your fight or flight in your brain is controlled by your amygdala, in which the amygdala is controlled by your medial lobes, and the medial lobes are responsible for mindfulness, letting you know, hey, you're okay, nothing's going to happen, that's just a person running by, they're not running over here to stab you or injure you. <laughs> um, so another great one is exercise. Um, I've already discussed how exercise can increase your brain's growth hormone, supports your brain's mitochondria, and helps reverse cognitive decline. And that goes for many people. Many people suffer ailments because they 
are in these systems in the world that put exercise and normal animal activities to the side when you can't do that. You can't just sit in front of a TV slamming, you know, sugar foods all damn day and think that everything's going to be okay. You do that long enough, it's going to take a toll and it's going to cause cancers to come out, heart attacks and other things because in the world, anything that's fake sugars like uh, dextrose, monocrose, sucrose, those are all pesticides. And I know nobody wants to believe that, but unfortunately in 1970, a farmer was mixing together three different types of pesticides. The wind blew, and he was right there. It blew so hard that it blew it into his mouth. He ran inside the house, told his wife he wouldn't believe this, those pesticides I was mixing together out there. They were sweet like sugar. How can sugar ward off bugs? And in reality, uh, back, back in the 70s, people had no idea that pesticides had a half-life. Or like when you drink that energy drink, it has a half-life. When you put that alcohol in your system, it has a half-life. And that's what makes people addicted to drugs. That's what makes people say, oh, I don't ever want to drink again. And then at the end of the week, they're right back at the bar drinking again because the half-life is still in your system and it's calling you back and it's not ever going to let you go. So anyways, they were putting pesticides all over the place in the 70s and they have so many, so much pesticidic half-lifes in the ground of crops that we are forever going to be having food with pesticides in it. There's no way around it. The government ain't going to tell you that. You got to find all this stuff out by doing research and reading and finding out the truth, you know, and um, actually getting yourself educated because once he mixed those three pesticides together, he pretty much called the EPA or the agricultural company of Iowa or wherever it was, Indiana, I can't remember, but they came out with all these scientists, confiscated all this stuff, and then in the 80s we seen uh, Diet Pepsi, you know, they came out with Equal. Then at the end of the 80s there was a huge recall of all those sugars because they did not take the time to figure out that those pesticides were pesticides and they will kill people. And they turned it into sugar and started selling it to the American people as Diet Pepsi. And diet, and people started falling down dead. They had huge recalls of Diet Pepsi back in the late 80s and huge lawsuits. But anyways, um, another uh, way to exercise your vagal nerve is massage. Um, research shows that massages can stimulate the vagus nerve and increase vagal activity and vagal tone. You guys, my vagal tone, it's strong. Now... I have I have exercised my vagal nerve all my life. I've just I'm that type of person. I've always, you know, I've always believed that everything you put in your mouth is medicine. The vagus nerve can also be stimulated by massaging several specific areas of the body. Foot massages, uh, reflexology have been shown to increase vagal modulation and heart rate variability and decrease the fight or flight uh, systematic response. Messaging the uh, carotid tied sinus an area located near the right side of your throat can also stimulate the vagus nerve and reduce seizures i personally uh get a massage from a registered massage therapist every couple months just for this reason um and another one that'll always works with um and i find this to be truthful and early development like home life things like that. A way my vagal nerve was stimulated as a kid was through laughter and socializing with friends and my family. Um, I've already discussed how socializing and laughter can reduce uh, your body's main stress hormone in other podcasts that I've done. And now I, uh, and now I, uh, they are like, 
they like doing I lost my spot you guys I am so sorry but it's just uh, socializing and laughter stimulates the vagus nerve as well um, and the conclusion of all this is you know you don't have to be controlled by your body and mind you have the power to tell them what to do by stimulating the vagus nerve you can send messages to your body that it's time to relax and de-stress, which leads to long-term improvements in mood, well-being, and resilience. And resilience is important in the workspace and in the home life because if you're not resilient, um, anything and everything will knock you off your square, and you just can't have that in life. You know, life's too hard. Um, increasing my vagal tone has allowed me to overcome anxiety and depression and better manage them when they arise. Overall, I hope you can implement some of this stuff into your life and maybe you'll learn how to become better people and better well coped. Um, and now back to the mind and brain by Alfred Bennett. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, this is the only you podcast and this is chapter one, the distinction between cognition and its object. After having thus studied matter and reduced it to sensations, we shall apply the same method of analysis to mind and inquire whether mind possesses any characteristic which allows it to be distinguished from matter. Before going any further, let me clear up an ambiguity. All the first part of this work has been devoted to the study of what is known to us in and by sensation and have taken upon myself without advancing any kind of justifying reason to call that which is known to us by this method by the name of matter, thus losing sight of the fact that matter only exists by uh, contradiction and opposition to mind, and that if mind did not exist, neither would matter. I have thus appeared to prejudge the question to be resolved. The whole of this terminology must now be considered as having simply a conventional value. I agree to that. Uh, and the mind and the brain and must be set aside for the present. These are the precise terms in which this question presents itself to the mind. A part of the knowable consists in sensations. We must therefore, without troubling to style this aggregate of sensations, matter rather than mind. Make an analysis of the phenomena known by the name excuse me, known by the, oh, excuse me, I can't even talk, known by the name of mind and see whether they differ from the preceding ones. Let us therefore make an inventory of mind by the process of enumeration. We find quoted as psychological phenomena. The sensations, the perceptions, the ideas, the recollections, the reasoning, the emotions, the desires, the imaginations, and the acts of attention and of will. These appear to be, at the first glance, the elements of mind, but on reflection, one perceives that these elements belong to two distinct categories, of which it is easy to recognize the duality, although, in fact, and in reality, these two elements are con constantly combined. The first of these elements may receive the genetic name of objections, or excuse me, objects of cognition, my bad. Sorry, you guys. Sometimes I get ahead of myself when I'm reading. That's why I kind of misspeak. And I'm like, oh, I lost my place. I didn't lose my place. I'm just 
I'm getting ahead of myself when I'm reading. Sorry about that, everybody. Our objects known and the second of acts of cognition. Here are a few examples of concrete facts which only require a rapid analysis to make their double nature plain. In a sensation which we feel are two things, a particular state or an object which one knows and the act of knowing it, of feeling it, of taking cognizance of it, in other words, every sensation compromises an impression and a cognition. True. In a recollection, there is, in like manner, a certain image of the past and the fact consisting in the taking cognizance of this image. It is, in other terms, the distinction between the intelligence and the object. Similarly, all reasoning has an object. There must be matter on which to reason, whether this matter be supplied by the facts or the ideas. Again, a desire, a violation, an act of reflection has need of a point of application. One does not will in the air, one wills something. One does not reflect in the void, one reflects over a fact or over some difficulty. Completely true. We may then excuse me, we may then provisionally distinguish in an inventory of the mind a something which is perceived, understood, desired, or willed, and beyond that, the fact of perceiving, of understanding, or desiring, or of willing. To illustrate the distinction by an example, I shall say that an analogous separation can be affected in an act of vision by showing that the act of vision, which is a concentration of operation, oh, excuse me, a concrete operation, compromises two distinct elements. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. This is your boy, Lo Jackson, and today we're doing a great read for y'all. It's called The Mind and the Brain by Alfred Bennett, and I give this book a five-star review because it, it there was so much stuff in here to unpack. It's wild, honestly. I'm like, I'm reading you a little bit of the stuff I thought was kind of interesting, and maybe you guys don't follow along, and hopefully you will, but I found some of this stuff to be just downright interesting. Uh, definition of sensation. I want to share this with you. When making the analysis of matter, excuse me, when making the analysis of matter, we admitted two propositions. First, that sensation and the tertium quid, which is a Latin word, which is interposed between the extentient of our sensory, sensory nerves and ourselves. Secondly, the aggregate of our sensations is all we can know of the outer world, so that it is correct to define this last as the collection of our present, past, and possible sensations. It is not claimed that the outer world is nothing else than this, but it is claimed with good reason that the outer world is nothing else to us. It would be possible to draw from the above considerations a clear definition of sensation, and especially it would be possible to decide henceforth with the foregoing whether sensations is a physical or a mental phenomenon. And that and this book has to do with the vagus nerve, but like I said, this book was written over a hundred years ago. And I'm reading this to you, this part, because it's 
it, it's talking about the vagus nerve, but this dude doesn't even, the vagus nerve hasn't even been dissected and out there yet to let everybody know that we know what it is. You know what I mean? Because technology wasn't that advanced back then. Um, where was I? Um, and especially it would be possible to decide henceforth from the foregoing whether sensation is a physical or a mental phenomenon and whether it belongs to matter or to mind. This is the important point, the one which we now state and which we will endeavor forever. To make the question clearer, we will begin it fresh, as if it were now, and as if it were facts hitherto and now analyzed, did not already prejudge the situation. Excuse me, didn't prejudge the solution. Let us begin by giving definition of sensation from the point of view of experimental psychology. Sensation, then, is the phenomenon which is produced and which one expresses when an exeunt has just acted on one of our organs of sense. The phenomena is therefore composed of two parts, an action exercised from outside by some body or other on our nervous substance, and then the fact of feeling this action. This fact of feeling, this state of consciousness, is necessary to constitute sensation. When it does not exist, it is preferably to give the phenomenon another name. Otherwise, the fault is committed of mixing up separate facts. uh, Psychologists have on this point some faults of terminology uh, with which to reproach themselves, for they have employed the word sense. Ability with too little of critical spirit. Sensibility being capacity for sensation presupposes, like sensation itself, consciousness. It has therefore been wrong in psychology to speak of the sensibility of the issue and organs which, like the vegetable tissues or the animal organs of vegetable life, properly speak, feel nothing but react by rapid or slow movements to the excitements they are made to receive. You guys, thank you for listening to the Only You Podcast. And today I'm doing the book called The Mind and Brain by Alfred Bennett. Thank you so much for following me. Thank you for sharing. Thank you guys for tuning into the Only You Podcast. Alfred Bennett was actually born on July 8, 1857. And he had the unfortunate death on October 18, 1911. He was born Alfredo Benetti, was a French psychologist who invented the first practical IQ test, the Benet Simon test. In 1904, the French Ministry of Education asked psychologist Alfred Benet to devise a method that would determine which students did not learn effectively from regular classroom instruction, so they could be given remedial work. Along with his collaborator, Theodore Simon Benet, published revisions of his test in 1908 and 1911, the last of which appeared just before his death. Um, He actually is one of uh, many psychologists of that time that had a lot of actually great ideas. Um, You know, in his education and early career, Benet was born um, in Nice, which is uh, a part of the kingdom of Sardinia, 
<laughs> he was born in the town of Nice. Is that not cool? Until it's um, annexation by the Second French Empire in 1816 and ensuing policy of Frankization. Frankization. Bennett uh, attended law school in Paris and received his de degree in 1878. He also studied psychology at the uh, Sorbonne, which is a school. Sor uh, Sorbonne is the pretty much is the University of Paris. I think most people know that. Um, he also studied psychology there, and um, his first formal position uh, was a researcher at a neurological clinic in Paris from 1883 to 1889. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Bennett went on to being a researcher and associate director of the Laboratory of Experimental Psychology at the Saborne from 1891 to 1894. And in 1894, he was promoted to being the director of the laboratory until 1911, which, you know, obviously that was the year that he had passed away, unfortunately. Um, Jonathan Stuart Mill, who believed that the operations of intelligence could be explained by the laws of associationism, Bennett eventually realized the limitations of this theory, but Mill's ideas continued to influence his work. And in 1883, years of unaccompanied study uh, ended when Bennett was introduced to Charles Ferrer, who introduced him to Jean-Martin Charcot and the director of a clinical called uh, Les Petres in Paris. Charcot... Charcot became his mentor, and in turn, Bennett accepted a position at the clinic, working his in his neurological laboratory, which, that's kind of awesome, they had neurological laboratories back then, and they were into hypnotism and all kinds of stuff, kind of cool. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast, and this has been a uh, uh, great book to read i mean a lot of the terminologies and words in here are mind-blowing just for the fact that it was over a hundred years ago this book was written but not a lot has changed but then again when you read this book the mind and the brain by alfred Bennett, you can actually see from then to now all the different um um things that have come about that he didn't even know about but he he talked about them but they weren't actually deemed you know, psychology terms, or, um, I think, I think that's pretty cool, you know, I mean, thank you guys for listening, thank you for following me, thank you for sharing me, I want you guys to have coping skills, I want you guys to be great people, I want to be a good person, I use these coping skills myself, and I listen to my own podcast over and over to try to learn things that I didn't know, or, you know, coping skills, they can include such things as noticing tension and taking deep breaths, catching negative thoughts and replacing them with healthy ones, setting and maintaining appropriate healthy boundaries between you and others, which a lot of people don't know about boundaries. You don't just put your hands on people or you just don't say things anytime you feel like it. Relaxing with uh, aromatherapy, and I'm huge on aromatherapy. I'm huge on botched flower therapy. If you don't know about botched flower therapy, look it up. It's something to do with, you know, um, you know, obviously, uh, smelling therapy, you know, aromatherapy. So you guys, you know, coping mechanisms can be many different things, you know, sleeping the right amount of time, finding things that make you grateful, creating little moments of joy each day. 
Thank you guys for listening, and I hope to God that this podcast helped each and every one of you be better people. Um, I want to do a podcast soon on animals. I want to find a great book because there's so many things about animals in the psychological world that help human beings be better people and become understanding, caring, and appreciative. Um, I don't know if anybody knows this, but in Egypt... All the pharaohs always had like a pointy-ear cat next to them and all of the hieroglyphics that you see. Not a lot of people know this, but a cat's purr has a frequency that can calm the human heart. So when, you know, the slaves came to the pharaoh with their, um, you know, problems or whatever, the pharaoh, if it was something very serious and he wasn't sure what to do, in the writings in um, Egypt, you know, scholars have figured out that the pharaoh would grab the cat instantly, close his eyes, and start petting. The louder the purr became, the calmer the pharaoh became. And, I mean, this would go on for 20, 30 minutes before the pharaoh decided what he was going to do. He would sit there closed-eyed, cat in his lap, and just petting away, and the purr would get louder and louder and louder till the whole room was silent. And if you spoke, I'm sure you were probably beheaded or something crazy. Don't quote me on that, but, you know, back then things, you know, when you interrupted the pharaoh, that was a no-no. Um, so once his heart frequency was in tune with the cat purr, it calmed the pharaoh's whole entire nervous system so his vagus nerve was totally calm from the purring of the heart in reality the purr enters your heart frequency and it calms your heart and your lungs down your vagus nerve thank you guys for listening this is the only you podcast y'all need to get a cat start petting it